Good morning, Valley Bible Church. So good to see you. Thank you for joining us on our online platform here. Uh, we are uh, so excited to continue to journey through the Gospel of John. And as we do that, I want to ask this question. I think it's a, it's a question that's probably on all of our minds right now, a question that we're all deeply feeling right now because of the current situation. The question is this, who will bring the world that ought to be? Who will bring the world that should be? Now, all of us know deep down inside that things are not as they should be. Things are not as they ought to be. We all kind of have this nagging dream inside of us that as we look out and see the world that we're currently experiencing, we just we feel unsettled and we, we say to ourselves, who's going to bring the world that ought to be? Who's going to bring the world that should be? Well, we've been surrounded and bombarded by, by darkness and by brokenness. We've watched a man lose his life under the knee of an officer who swore to serve and protect. We've seen an officer die in Oakland. An officer who, who lived in a neighboring city of ours right here in Pinole. Who's going to bring the world that ought to be? Who's going to bring the world that should be? The agony that we feel, the tension, the depression, the frustration we feel right now. That this is not how things should be. This is not how things ought to be. Maybe even deeper than that. I am not who I ought to be. I am not who I should be. Who's going to make me who I ought to be? Who's going to make me who I should be? Maybe, maybe you're disappointed with your own personal moral progress. Maybe you see that it seems like every time we take a step forward, it seems like we take two steps backwards. It's like, it's like our present progress is only cannibalized later by our future sins. We don't seem to be making any progress. One moral step forward, two immoral steps backwards. So who is going to bring the world that ought to be? And bring the world that should be? Who's going to make us who we ought to be? Who's going to make us who we should be? I think the Bible is very clear on the answer to that question. The answer to that question is our big idea for this morning, which is the main idea of our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, or sorry, John chapter 1. And what we're going to see is that John is going to portray Jesus Christ as the only answer. The big idea for this morning is this. Only Christ can make our moral dreams a reality. Only Christ can make our moral dreams a reality. O only He is the one who can make us better and this world better. Looking anywhere else will only disappoint. And John is going to show that in, in, in dramatic fashion. That, that, that Jesus Christ is the answer to our sinful past to our shame, to our guilt, to our regret. But he's, he's even more than that. That Jesus Christ ensures that we'll be better later, that we'll be better in the future. He can not only handle our past, but he can give us a hope of a brighter future. He can change us and transform us on top of just forgiving us. Let, let me show you that this is the main idea of John chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 
29, we've been introduced to the character John the Baptist, the, the forerunner of Jesus, the kind of setup guy is what we've called him. And John the Baptist sees Jesus, not his first encounter with Jesus, but he sees Jesus and he makes this public statement about Jesus. And this first statement is going to show us how Jesus is the answer to the sins of our past. He's the answer to our guilt, to our shame, to our regret. He's the one that can forgive us of our sin. Look how John does this in a really dramatic and very unique fashion. Look at verse 29 of John chapter 1. It says, The next day he saw Jesus, John the Baptist saw Jesus, coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is a very unique thing that John is saying here. I think that that terminology, Lamb of God, is, is very familiar to the 21st century Christian. It's a term we use a lot because it's used here in this passage. But it was not a common term in the first century world. In fact, we don't find that phrase, Lamb of God, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament besides right here. It's a very unique phrase. And I think what John is doing, uh, John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer who recorded John's statement here, is he's not trying to point to one specific thing, one specific thing in the Old Testament that he's trying to bring to our mind. What John is doing, he's taking kind of this statement and tying together multiple themes of the Old Testament. John is showing that Jesus Christ is the culmination of so much Old Testament hope. Of all the scriptures written before Jesus in the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ is the one who who stands on the top of the mountain as a fulfillment of everything that we were longing for before. It says, behold, the Lamb of God. What does that that mean? Let's just unpack that and, and see how this is the answer to our past sin, our regret, our shame, and our guilt. It says, the Lamb of God. Well, just that phrase, of God, what does that mean? It means God is the owner of this lamb. He is the provider of this lamb. The the first century Jewish uh, reader would see this and they would recall the story of the great Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. You see, Abraham, who's called the father of the Jewish faith, was a man who, who didn't have really much until God interacted into his life. God interacts with Abraham and tells Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the world. The world. Not just your family, but the world. I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to forgive them of their sin and reunite them back to their creator. What a wonderful promise. But it's kind of a strange promise. Because Abraham is advanced in years and he has no children. So how can his offspring and his family be a blessing to the world if he has no family? Well, God waits a little longer to finally fulfill that promise. And when Abraham is the very uh, young age of 100, he finally gets a son named Isaac. And the story takes another strange pivot, a strange turn. Because God in Genesis chapter 22 tells Abraham, Abraham, you need to sacrifice that promised son. You need to sacrifice Isaac. I want you to end the boy's life. And Abraham, without hesitation, obeys God. And he's taking this journey with his young son. And at one point, the son says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham says, The Lord will provide the lamb. 
the Lord will provide the lamb. And right before the, the knife plunges into this young boy, as he's lifting it in the air, God stops Abraham and says, no, this was a test of your faith. And God provides a ram caught in the thicket. And that is the sacrifice. This is what would be brought up to the first century hearers. When they see the lamb of God, the lamb that God owns, the lamb that God provides. Now we could see this clearly played out knowing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was the one provided by the Father for us. That he stood in our place. We did not die on the cross, but Christ did. There's even more. He, he pulls in another theme from the Old Testament, just to make the picture even more vivid. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Why does he use the term Lamb? Well, just, just saying that, it would also invoke in the first century reader's mind the idea of the great Passover lamb. I think this is clear and maybe one of the dominant themes that John is using here because Passover is so important to the gospel writer John. In fact, he, he starts Jesus' ministry on Passover with the, the cleansing of the temple. And then he actually ends the ministry of Jesus, at least at the crucifixion, which he says happens on the Passover. So you see kind of the bookends of Jesus' ministry are on the Passover. But even as he describes the death of Christ in John chapter 18 and John chapter 19, he uses Passover language. So I think what, what John is highlighting here, the Baptist and the writer, is that Jesus Christ, the one he's just seen, is the Passover lamb. Now who's that? The, the Passover lamb was a lamb that was first sacrificed where the people of Israel were in Egyptian slavery. It's a beautiful story of history. How God would turn the tables on the tyrants of the Egyptians. How God would free his people from their oppressors. And he didn't do it by asking them to pick up a sword or a spear or a shield or anything like that. He did it through these miraculous displays of power and plagues. And the last plague, the, the one that was meant to be the knockout blow to Pharaoh, was that God would come. For the firstborn son of every home in the land. And the people of Israel had an opportunity. To be protected from this plague. And so God provides instructions. and says here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice a lamb. And you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then I will pass over it. The Passover lamb. So what is John showing us? Jesus Christ is the one that has been provided by the father. He is the lamb of God. He is the one who protects us from the judgment of God. But the picture gets even fuller. Not only is there a picture of provision, a picture of, uh, of protection, but there's more. John explains the phrase, look down at the passage again in verse 29. It says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A Lamb who takes away sin. This would be the large picture in the Old Testament of sacrifice. Sacrifice that would take away sin. See, the people of Israel were, were used to this practice of, of having their sins forgiven, experiencing forgiveness by way of sacrifice. Now, now, why did God do this? God wanted to teach his people a very valuable lesson. He wanted to teach them about justice, but he also wanted to teach them about mercy. And sacrifice was the perfect way to do both of those things. Justice he could teach them because the penalty was inflicted. Death was inflicted 
on the sacrifice. He could teach them mercy because the punishment was inflicted on someone else. On a lamb, on an animal, on a sacrifice. And so he could display mercy and justice at the same time. What a full picture here we get from John. The, the idea that Jesus Christ is the one who solves our past. He removes our guilt, our regret, our sin, and our shame. Only Christ, only Christ can make our moral dreams a reality. You see, but we need more than that. Oh, it's wonderful to have our guilt removed, our shame removed, our past erased, if you will. And he says that this opportunity is open, what, to the world. He takes away the sins of the world, not of one people, not of one race, but of all races can have their sins erased by the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice as the Lamb of God. But we need more than that. Who can ensure that we'll be better later? Who can ensure that that, that our future won't be full of sin like our past has been full of sin. It, it's true that, that, that it's nice to have your guilt removed, but what if you just pile on more debt later? We need, we need inner transformation. We see this throughout the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament... God is, is wonderful uh, in, in giving them law and then giving them sacrifice, giving them guidelines and, and a lot of guidelines, very specific guidelines, over 600 commands in the Old Testament. God gives them these laws, but they, they break these laws. And so God provides the opportunity for sacrifice so experience of forgiveness can happen. But you see this pattern over and over again that there's law, sacrifice, law, sacrifice, Law, sacrifice, over and over and over again. And really, the whole story of the Old Testament kind of ends on a very depressing note. That the people of God lose the land because they just can't obey. They can't, they can't stay and live in the promised land that he, they've been waiting for, for for hundreds of years. They finally get there and they lose it. They lose it because the law is not enough and sacrifice is not enough. And sacrifice doesn't change the real problem. And what's the real problem? The real problem is right here. The real problem is in the heart. The law doesn't change the heart. And the sacrifices don't change the heart. Who will help us not only remove our shame and our guilt and our sin, not only give us forgiveness, but who will transform us, change us, give us a new heart? John the Baptist believes that Jesus is the answer to that question as well. I want you to jump down to verse 33. We're going to read 33 and 34, and we'll get to the middle in a moment. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, John the Baptist is speaking here, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? That Jesus Christ is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who, who immerses us, drenches us, plunges us into the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the language there. Well, it goes back to an Old Testament hope. 
See, yes, that the, the Old Testament does end on a very depressing note that the people of God are in bondage once again. They lose the land and then they're, they're captives. But as they're leaving and in, as they're in their agony, God gives a promise of hope. Hope that he'll finally solve the main problem of the heart. Look at this wonderful promise. Before Jesus ever arrives on the scene, hundreds of years before he is ever born, hundreds of years before God the Son takes on flesh, look at the promise that God gave his people. This is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Already you see a a baptism idea. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is going to solve the root of the problem, the heart of the problem, which is our heart. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will pour not just any spirit, but my spirit inside of you. So now you can obey. So now you can be transformed. I I, I honestly think that this is one of the reasons that we are so incredibly frustrated with our current situation. With our, with our current problem, our current racial tension, with our current divide in our nation. is because it's true that, that, that demonstration and, and education and, and legislation are good things and cause some change, but they're just not good enough. They're not good enough. If we've learned one lesson in all of human history, is that these things will not change us. Not truly. We need change right here. We need heart change. We need spiritual heart surgery. And Christ is the only one to do it. The only one to immerse us, to drench us, to plunge us into His Spirit, to transform our hearts. Because this is where hate lies. Right here. And no legislation will ever change that. No education will ever change that. No rally or demonstration will ever change that. Those are good things, but they're just not good enough. We need more. Or else our story will just be the pattern of the Old Testament Israel. Over and over again, the, the, the lesson is just bombarded against our brains as we read the Old Testament. Failure after failure. If there's one, one lesson in the entirety of the Old Testament, it's this. Law doesn't fix the heart. Only the giver of the Spirit can. Only Christ can. The one who transforms us, changes us. Not only removes our sin from us, but removes the sin in us. That's what we need. Only Christ can make our moral dreams a reality. But this nation has known Christ. This this nation has known Christ for hundreds of years. It's easy just to parouse a history book 
and to see the founding fathers with Bibles in their hands. Church attendance rolls that we can take back hundreds of years and see many of our presidents, many of our uh, uh, Senate and Cabinet members on those rolls. This nation has known Christ. This nation puts God on its money, on its currency, something that passes through our hands all the time. So why haven't we changed? Because there's a big difference between being aware of Christ and knowing Christ. And John makes this distinction for us. As he illustrates the story of John the Baptist, we'll see this even for John the Baptist himself. He was aware of Christ, but he didn't know Christ. And why is that? Why did he not know the one who could free him from his past and transform him into one who lives a righteous life? How did he not know him? Look down again at our passage. We're going to pick back up. We'll start with verse 29 just so we get the rhythm of the entirety of the passage. John says this, Now, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins or the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Listen to this. I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that I might re- reveal him to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Notice how twice he said in verse 31 and verse 33, I didn't know him. Now, if you've been reading the Bible for a while that kind of might strike you as odd. Wait a second, how did, did, did John the Baptist not know Jesus? Aren't they relatives? And you're right, in the Gospel of Luke, we see this. We see that the mother of Jesus and the mother of John the Baptist were relatives. Luke mentions it. He even speaks of an interaction between the two of them during their time of pregnancy. And what we know of the first century world and how families related to each other It would be hard to imagine that these boys never ran into each other. In fact, in the other Gospels that that, that give the account of of John actually baptizing Jesus, it it seems that the way that those are portrayed, John recognizes Jesus before he ever baptizes him. So what does John mean? I don't know him. Why does he say that twice? I do not know of him. I don't think what he's saying that, that, that he's not aware of Jesus. I think he's aware of Jesus. But I think the passage makes clear that he learned something new about Jesus. You see, God told John the Baptist, the one who you see, the Spirit fall on him like a dove and remain on him. That's the Son of God. That's the Lamb of God. That's the one who baptizes with the Spirit. What changed John's perspective? The Spirit did. The Spirit fell upon Jesus. See, this is what's missing. What's missing from America who is very aware of Jesus, casually associated with Jesus, 
a nation that makes reference to Jesus in its art, in its songs, in its lyrics, in its poetry, in its curse words, in its bumper stickers, in its campaign speeches, maybe even in its legislation. But a world or a nation doesn't truly know him. What's missing? The Spirit of God has not fallen on our view of Jesus. And if the Spirit of God does not fall on our view of Jesus, all he is is a historical figure. All he is is a relative. All he is is a significant teacher. All he is is somebody who's gaining a following. All he is is a nice moral teacher. Somebody who belongs in the history books, but not somebody who belongs in the steering wheel or holding on to the steering wheel of our lives. We need the Spirit of God to fall, fall on our view of Jesus. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that as a nation we are going to run to a false hope. In our despair, in our agony, in our anger, in our rage, in our wrath, in our fear, in our anxiety, and in our stress, we'll run to somebody who cannot bring the world that ought to be, who cannot bring the world that should be, who cannot make us who we should be, who cannot make us who we ought to be. And we'll lean on demonstrations and we'll lean on education and we'll lean on legislation. And all we'll get is brokenness for more brokenness. And that dream that we are trying to force into reality will only become another nightmare. That's what I'm afraid of. Valley Bible Church. Friends and family of this church. America as a nation, the world, if I could address even that far. The scriptures are clear that we will not see each other as we should until we see Jesus as we should. We'll miss it. It won't work. It won't, it won't change. This is played out in the Old Testament. Just as even the law is delivered, in the very initial delivery of the law, we see this pattern right there before us showing how futile law is to change true behavior. When the Ten Commandments are given, right after they're given, there's sinful rebellion. I said there was over 600 commands in the Old Testament. And they're not all given just at once. But if we look at the Bible as it portrays it. It gives the Ten Commandments, then rebellion happens. Then it gives more commands, and then more rebellion happens. And more commands, and more rebellion. And more commands, and more rebellion. And more commands, and more rebellion. What is the idea there? Again, the law doesn't work to change behavior. All the law does is trade brokenness for more brokenness. We know this. I don't need to remind you of this. 
Every time, again, we take a step forward, we take two steps backward. Yes, it's true. The Emancipation Proclamation changed the world. The Civil Rights Movement changed the world. Peaceful marches changed the world. Jim Crow went away. But then America embraced the killing of babies. The destruction of the unborn at a rapid pace. Yes, it's true, we won victory over Nazi Germany. Those who would, who would look at others to dehumanize them. The Aryan race that would look at those who didn't look like them and say that they're less. And we won that war, yet we seem to still be singing that song. Human history is not one that leaves you to boast in the accomplishments of men. More technology at our disposal. More engineers. More degrees. More sophistication of thought and design than ever before in the history of mankind. And all we've done is got better at killing each other. We've taken more life in the last century than we ever have before. And what's frustrating is our moral introspection seems to only be a trend. Our conviction, our moments of silence, only seem to last till the next news cycle. Don't you feel it? The despair of it? We watched a man die. And I will wonder, how long will that really be imprinted in our minds? Will it just become cliché? Old, stale, something we're, we're numb to. And I have to be honest, I think I'm naturally a pessimistic person. I don't think we're going to get better. That's how I feel. I'm a young man, but I've seen enough history to be disappointed a true tra- change never seems to actually move forward. But I have hope. Hope that there is someone who can make our moral dreams a reality. And that is Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who baptizes with the Spirit who gives us a new heart and says, now you can obey. Oh, what a beautiful picture. Oh, what a beautiful promise. And how can we get that? How can we get people to see that? The Spirit of God has to fall on our view of Jesus. It just has to. Because we won't see it without that movement. So here's what I'm asking you to do. 
I'm asking you to do something that I think is the most powerful thing to cause change in our lives, in our land, in our nation, in this world. I want to ask you to pray. To walk and to pray. To walk and to pray every day, starting today for the rest of the week. Maybe walk a mile. It's good for your health. Get out there, de-stress a little bit. You're confined inside your shelter in place. Get out, walk a little bit. But as you're walking, pray. Pray that the Spirit of God will fall on your neighbor's view of Jesus Christ. Pray that the Spirit of God will show them that He's the only one that can make their moral dreams a reality. He's the only one who can bring lasting change, who can bring lasting reform. He's the only one that can transform, who completely release us from our past and our shame. Forgive us of all of it. And you could say, I can make you better. I can do something in you that will change you and transform you. Just imagine for a moment, if everybody who was watching this, everybody who's watching this right now, committed to pray every day, walk a mile every day for a week. Imagine the hundreds of miles. Imagine the amount of land the neighborhoods that would be occupied by people praying. Imagine the hundreds of miles. We need the Spirit of God to riot right in here, to break some windows, to knock down some doors, and to clean up shop. That's what we need. A church family... I hope you feel frustrated and at your wit's end. I hope, in a sense, you feel defeated, at least when you look at your own strength. You feel that you're in a corner, and you have nowhere else to look but up. That's a wonderful place to be. I invite you. Would you pray with me? Would you join me? Would you pray with me every single day this week, walking around your neighborhood? Imagine your neighborhood not on fire because of rioters or those that decided to, to, to destroy, but imagine your neighborhood on fire spiritually because saints were walking around praying for those neighborhoods. Oh, that's a day that I long for. Now, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. You haven't kind of crossed that line yet and committed yourself to that kind of idea. A friend, I, I believe that you aspire to be a better person, to be a better you. And maybe this time has really changed you or started change in you to cause some reflection, to make you think, I should be better. I should do better. I should do more. And those impulses are good. And those impulses are great. I would go so far to say those impulses are godly. But you will find frustration if you look anywhere else but Jesus Christ for true change. 
you'll find yourself disappointed again in more brokenness and more sin. Pushing away one addiction to take one more. Pushing away one set of brokenness just to take on more. Only in Jesus Christ will you find a hero to give you a true happy ending. And so I believe you. I believe that you want to be better. I believe inside of you there's a hunger that you should be more and that you ought to be more. And friend, I'm telling you, only in Jesus Christ, only in Jesus Christ will you find that hope. In Jesus Christ you can find the forgiveness of sins and a promise to be transformed by Him. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment. And I want to invite you to take Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time, to run after Him, to tell Him, be my hero, be my Lord, be my Savior, be the Lamb of God, be the one who can change me inside. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you for the wonderful diversity that is displayed here right at this church. Father, I thank you that our lives are filled by others who don't look like us. And that is a wonderful thing. Father, if I only listen to those who look like me, I would never know the gospel. I would never know the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you, Father, that you build a church that's wonderfully diverse. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to reflect your love, to reflect your work. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall on us as a nation. Oh, we have a dream to be better, a dream of what ought to be, and it nags at us. It scratches inside of us, wanting to burst forth and be a reality. But the dream never seems to be fulfilled. It only becomes wishful thinking, stored away, locked up, and sadness never to be achieved. Holy Spirit, show us that Christ is the hero that will unlock that hope that's in all of us, that dream that's in all of us. Father, I pray that you would wake us up as a nation, shake us from this nightmare, and show us the brilliance of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, for those that are listening to this and they've never committed their life to you, they want to call themselves a Christian. Oh, Father, I pray you'd speak to them. If that's you, you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ today, you can do that. If you want Him to forgive you of your sin and transform you from within, you can pray a very simple prayer. You can pray something like this. You can pray, Father, I see. I see that I need you. I see that I need your forgiveness. I see that you provided that forgiveness in the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. So today I receive that forgiveness by making you the Lord and Savior of my life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Church family, I want to thank you for joining us. Look forward to seeing you again.